Hi, this is Dan Foytek. I create and produce The Lift alongside my good friend Cynthia Lohman, who is also today's narrator. How about that? At any rate, I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that this is only one of the shows that you can find over at Society 13 Podcast Network. You can find that network over at society-13.com. If you like this show, there's other shows on there that you might enjoy. There's a paranormal show called History Goes Bump, The Wicked Library, which I also produce, and the Ninth Story Podcast, of course, which is where Victoria comes from, Kettle Whistle Radio, Red Horse Radio, Prog Watch, the Caveman Mafia Podcast, Dangling After Dark, Watch It, Play It, The Pop-Off. There's a whole bunch of them over there. So do go over to society-13.com and check out some of the other great shows that are on that network. And if you're looking for the lift in iTunes, we are looking at the end of February for that to happen. So keep on listening, sharing, telling your friends about the lift. We really appreciate all of you listening to the show, all the great feedback that you've given us. And now, episode number six of The Lift. Hi, this is Gwendolyn Keist, and I'm the writer for today's episode of The Lift. Girl, alone at play. If you enjoy the story, you can find more of my work at GwendolynKeist.com. Find more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com. Do you hear me? I am Victoria. I am Victoria. Once upon a time, there was a place that became lost. Became lost. It is a place where story and substance combine. Where the reality of story shapes thoughts. Where fantasy becomes tangible. This is that place. Those who find themselves here are here to make a choice. The choices you made in the past don't matter. But the choice you make now is the one. The hangover alone might kill me. I crawl out of bed, my body outsized and undersized all at the same time. There were way too many mint juleps last night at my gallery opening. I thought I'd be classy and down a bunch of Gatsby drinks, but this isn't the Gilded Age, and I'm no Daisy Buchanan. Stumbling down the hallway, I pass frame after frame of my photography, flicking off the lights as I go. Ben loves to turn on every bulb in the apartment. Makes the place cheerier, he always says. Like we need so much cheer. But it's his place, and he can do what he wants. This living situation is only temporary. At least, that's what I've said ever since last winter, when I got tossed out of my last apartment over a fight with the landlord. The eviction notice was tacked to my door with tinsel the day before Christmas. Happy holidays to me. Anna, Ben calls from the kitchen. I'm in here. I find him leaned against the counter, bright-eyed as usual. He had a mint julep at the opening, too, but unlike me, he stopped at one. Good thing, since someone had to talk to prospective buyers. Steely Laments in the Steel City. That's the name of my urban landscape photography exhibit. 
Lots of people attend the opening, even if I don't remember any of their names. I make coffee, Ben says, as if it's a consolation prize. I pour myself a mug and glance at the table. He has dozens of photo proofs spread across the placemats. He tries to be a photographer, the poor fool. But the only reason he gets any notice is because he helps me out. Charging batteries, holding up scrims, basically all the menial work I don't want to do. Locally, I'm sort of a big deal. Winning a slew of awards every year, but awards don't keep the lights on. What's all this? I ask him. He hesitates. It's for a show I'm doing. You? I laugh. A solo show? He stares at the floor. It opens next week at the Gallery on Liberty. That rat trap? I sip my coffee, which tastes like sludge. It always tastes like sludge when Ben makes it. For a second there, I thought you got a decent place to display your work. Should have known better, huh? Ben exhales a slight whimper before busying himself with his proofs. Stack this one here, stack that one there. He'll do anything to avoid looking at me. I almost say I'm sorry, but he knows who I am. I don't change, and neither does he. It's the only way this setup works. There's that vintage photography installation at the Warhol Museum, he says at last glancing up at me. Want to go? I shake my head. I've got an appointment, I say, and I can tell by the way his eyebrows arch that he knows I'm lying. Besides, I went last week. I thought, he inhales quietly to calm himself. You said we'd go together, remember? That we could make an afternoon of it. I did say that, mostly because I didn't want to hear him whine about how we never do anything other than work stuff, like he owns me or something. I must have forgotten, I say as I grab my camera and head for the door, my head still swimming with bourbon. See you tonight. Downstairs, I step into a world that's brighter than I remember. Now I have to find something to do for the next few hours to make good on the lie. I'm halfway down the block, squinting and cursing the sun when my phone chirps. A voicemail from my mother. I roll my eyes, even before I hear her voice. Hi, honey. She says in that nasally undertone I've loathed since I was a child. I haven't heard from you in a while. I grunt. A while. It's been almost five years. I wish she'd leave me alone and forget she ever had a daughter. Instead, she delivers these rambling messages as if it's normal for a mother to call every morning like clockwork and equally normal for the daughter never to answer. How's your boyfriend? Is he doing well? I've never called Ben my boyfriend. Not once. He and I never dated. Not really. Not even in college when... Okay, maybe we hooked up when I was bored. But that wasn't a relationship. So, no, Mom, he's not my boyfriend. Besides, she hasn't heard from me in so long, he could be dead by now. I could be dead. Maybe if I sent her a fake obituary in the mail, that would be enough to end these calls for good. My lips curl into a smile as I consider it. A decent graphic design job, and she just might buy it. Honey, I don't know if you've looked at a calendar lately. My breath catches like a stone in my chest, and the coffee turns bitter in my stomach and rises up the back of my throat. I already know what she's about to say. But tomorrow would have been your sister's birthday, and I was thinking maybe we could visit her grave if you have time to... 
The phone droops in my hand, and though the voice murmurs on, I refuse to hear any more. Part of me wants to toss my mother to the ground and stomp her into bits so I never have to hear her mention Sadie again. Sadie, the daughter who should have lived, who would have lived if only water wasn't so cruel and unforgiving. She and I played hide-and-seek at the stream behind our house. Sadie hid, and I never have found her. I guess that means she won. I'm suddenly halfway down Penn Avenue, weaving between coffee shops and gas stations where you have to pay under little glass windows. There's only one place I know beyond this point. I'm on the way to visit my sister. A quarter block from the cemetery, I stop in front of a seedy bar on the corner. From the front door, I can see the steeples of the mausoleums and the curves of the tombstones. Strange how there's always a place to drink within walking distance of a graveyard. Must be job security for bartenders. With my camera slung around my neck, I pinch off the lens cap and snap a couple images with the bar in the foreground and the graves in the background. Tragic juxtaposition. If I put that one in my next show, it'll sell opening night. My head down, I trudge on, kicking up patches of earth as I cross into the cemetery. It's still the day before Sadie's birthday, so I won't see our mother here. She never visits except on special occasions. You have to pay your respects, I can hear her say, and I grit my teeth. Pay your respects on designated days only, and pretend your life is otherwise normal. But nothing's normal. Since the day the water devoured Sadie, nothing has ever been normal again. At the grave, I clear away some dead leaves and kneel before her. It's a giant stone for a tiny girl. Like always, I trace my fingers along the letters of her name. There are images, too, etched into the granite, all pictures of toys. A top forever spinning, a patchwork doll, a generic circle the man at the memorial place told my parents was a hula hoop, even though it didn't look like one. That was 20 years ago. But I can still smell his rancid cologne and remember the way the spit dribbled from his bottom lip as he cajoled us. This is the finest memorial we have, yes siree! He'd said, salivating more. And you want your little girl to have the best, don't you? He didn't need much of a shtick. Grief changes people. Makes even the wise gullible. And my father, his foot already halfway in the grave, and my always jovial mother would have agreed to anything. As if it was all for Sadie. As if she cared. The dead don't worry about tombstone engravings or flowers at funerals. They don't have to worry about anything. It's the one and only benefit of being dead. I stand and brush the dirt from my hands. I need a drink. Something stronger this time than a sissy mint julep. At the cemetery gates, I glance up at the bar and realize it's not where I left it. The neon beer lights are one block further down the road. Instead, on the corner is a tall apartment building with brickwork that goes on forever. It's the middle of the day, and the structure seems to have materialized out of a void. I approach cautiously, as if one false move and the place will vanish. It's fantastic. Old, run down, and with a patina that screams creepy. I smile, thankful I brought my camera. 
My next show could focus exclusively on this building. Mysterious Lives. That could be the title for the exhibit. All I need is a few tenants. Odd old people that fritter away life in their easy chairs and complain about an outside world they never see and convince them to pose for me. The front door is unlocked, and I peer down a long, sinuous hallway. Hello? When no doorman or superintendent intercepts me, I scurry inside, snapping pictures of this broken light fixture and that vintage door frame. But something's wrong. I can't hear the traffic outside anymore. It's as though the place has swallowed me whole. Get out of here, I think. But then I see the elevator shaft. At the end of a hallway, it's narrow and rickety and will look so beautiful blown up in a print and set in a gold-plated frame. I step inside, and it buckles under my weight. There are no floor buttons. Must be a service lift that you need a key to operate. But there's no keyhole, either. Not that I can see. I'm snapping an image of a wolf spider spun up in the corner. A picture I'll call Spider in a Corner Booth. When suddenly, the elevator doors slide closed. Hey! I pound my fist on the wall, where the buttons should be. Stop, damn it! Second floor. A crystalline voice says, and the ground shifts between my feet. It's a glitch. Old buildings have wiring glitches. That must be it. I hold my breath and wait. The doors open on the next floor, revealing another hallway. Like the lobby, it's quiet here, as if everything in the world has fallen away. Almost everything. In the shadows of the corridor, I see a little girl, swiveling a hula hoop around her waist. She's an odd sight, her blonde pigtails wagging up and down. No, it isn't so odd. This is an apartment building, and children live in apartments. In fact, she's standing outside a door. She probably lives inside and just comes out to the wide, empty hall to play. The strangeness of this place is getting to me. Anyhow, I'm here, so there's no reason to waste a photo opportunity. I focus the lens and snap the girl's picture. The hula hoop still spinning, round and round, almost like a top, which should give the image a nice feeling of motion. I imagine what I'll name it. Girl, alone at play. A real slice of Americana. This is the stuff that wins big awards. Maybe not Pulitzers, but it could earn a scholarship to get Ben and me through another year of bickering breakfasts and sludge coffee. I scroll through the preview screen to check my work. There's nothing but a gray blur. No hallway, no hula hoop, no girl. I snap another shot. Still darkness. Again and again, I click the camera. But not one image emerges. It's as if this building isn't here at all. Dim spaces can wreak havoc with lenses, so I fiddle with the aperture and speed. That has to be the problem. But when I lift the camera and try to focus, the little girl is no longer at the end of the hall. She's standing right in front of me. I stumble backwards and fall to the floor, cobwebs clogging my eyes and ears. What are you doing with that thing? The little girl points to my camera as though it's an alien spacecraft. I'm taking your picture, I say wheezing. Or trying to. She's no more than nine or ten and wears a faded purple dress with tiny flowers on it. 
but the fabric's so worn that the petals on the flowers have all turned black as if they've withered and died. Are you here to stay? She asks, and the question sounds more malevolent than it should. No, I say. I'm just visiting. We'll see about that, she says and starts back down the hallway. I follow her, glancing from one door to the next. There's no sign of an exit, only more apartments. If that's what's behind those doors... Where do you live? I ask. Surely someone will come looking for her soon, and that someone can direct me out of this place. I live here, she says. Alone. Do you live with someone? Yeah, I say, my mouth dry with dust and grime. I live with a friend. Do you like him? He's okay, it's just... I hesitate. Why do you care? The little girl shrugs. Curious, I suppose. And you can't really live alone. I knock on the nearest door. Your mother or father must be here somewhere. My family's dead, the girl says flatly. Oh, I say. I'm sorry. She blinks up at me. You know what it's like, don't you? I guess, I say. Everyone's lost somebody. We reach the end of the hall and the little girl drops to the floor and sits cross-legged amidst her hula hoop and toys. Do you want to play a game? I don't like games, I say, and wiggle the handles of three doors in a row. Every apartment's locked and no one's answering. The little girl smiles and rears back her head like a serpent. But I do like games, she says. And someone you know liked games, didn't she? I stare at her. What are you talking about? Who liked games? She grins wider. Your sister, Sadie. A knot in my chest tightens like a noose. What do you know about my sister? A little bit of everything, the girl says. Now, what about that game? I don't want to play any goddamn game. I advance toward her, preparing to take hold of that threadbare dress and rip her to shreds, but I stop myself. This is ridiculous. She's a little girl, that's all. Just a child. Even if she doesn't act like one. Even if she knows things she shouldn't. A leak in the ceiling drips across my face like a tear, and I remember that this building overlooks the cemetery. The girl probably saw me at the grave. That must be how she knows Sadie's name. Just show me the way out, okay? Not yet, she says. You have to get what you came for. And what is that? You want a photograph of me, don't you? I nod. I'll trade you then. A game for a photograph. Fine, I say and stoop next to her. What should I call you? Victoria. I already know your name. Yeah? You're Anna, and your roommate's Ben. He likes you, and you like him. But only sometimes. I laugh. I don't like most people any of the time. So liking him sometimes is actually a compliment. Whatever this little girl's ruse, I'll go along. Maybe it's all some weird practical joke. The kind with hidden cameras and a host who wears an ostentatious suit. No way I'm willing to humiliate myself on national television. So we play games. Tiddlywinks, dominoes, pickup sticks. Though I hate to admit it. The diversion takes me away, back to my sister, and how she always wanted to make me smile. Why do you like old buildings? Victoria asks. I don't know, I say. I guess because an old building is like a secret. 
It can seem so run down and ugly from the outside. But sometimes you find something lovely if you look hard enough. And you think that people can be like that too? Unpleasant on the outside, but beautiful inside? I scoff. (laughs) That's a corny way of saying it, but yeah. Victoria sets up a row of dominoes, and with a nudge of her finger, sends them tumbling down. She doesn't blame you, you know. Don't, I say. Don't act like you know her. Victoria sets up the dominoes again. But she wants you to know she doesn't blame you. She wants you to be happy. My cheeks burn, and I fight back tears. Sadie should blame me. It was my idea to play by the stream. At the funeral, our mother sobbed how she always knew that water had a strong undercurrent. I hated her for not telling me sooner. Sadie was my best friend, I whisper. And it didn't work out so well for her, did it? Someone gets close to me and look what happens. I clamber to my feet and try another door. Still locked. I went to scream. If I had a match, I'd burn the whole place down with me inside. Anything to escape this little girl. I'm halfway down the hall, straining at door after door, when those blonde pigtails are suddenly at my side. You remember the game Red Rover? I roll my eyes. I don't think we have enough players for that one, Victoria. But you played it with your sister, didn't you? It was our favorite. Sadie always stood next to me. We'd grip each other tight, so tight our hands would ache. Though we were small, no one, not even the biggest boys, could break us apart. They would run and run at us, but we held fast. Together, we won every time. Victoria smiles. She says she loves it when you visit her grave, and you run your fingers over her name. It helps her remember how it felt to hold your hand. Why are you doing this? My quivering voice dissolves in the air like smoke. She wants you to know that even if you can't see her... Victoria says, placing her tiny palm in mine. She's still standing next to you. I wilt against the wall. This isn't a gag. I wish it were, but there's no way she can know these things. Sadie? I search the dim hallway, and though I feel like a fool, I swear I can feel my sister standing there. You can take my picture now, Victoria says. As long as you promise to finish the last game. I promise. My body shaking, I raise the camera, and without glancing into the viewfinder, I snap the image. I don't bother to check it. It's probably nothing but shadows, and that's okay. It's what the image is meant to be. Now close your eyes and count to five. I do as she says, the tears streaming down my cheeks. One. Something moves near me, but it's not Victoria. She's skipping down the hall, giggling. (laughs) Two. My hand twitches, and I feel a strange warmth against my palm. Three. Someone's holding my hand. My sister's holding my hand. Four. 
figure drifts away. And now I reach out for her. I know she's gone. Five. My eyes open, and the room is too bright. I shield my face and blink fast into the light. It takes me a moment to realize I'm no longer in the old building. I'm standing back in my kitchen. Ben glances up from his proofs. I didn't hear you come in, he says. When did you get home? Just now, I guess. Ben nods at my camera. Get any good images today? I sit down next to him and scroll through the preview screen. Most of the pictures are gray blurs, same as I remember. All except one. In a single image, there's something in the hallway. But it's only a shadow. A pigtailed shadow. Very nice, Ben says. What will you call it? I hesitate. Victoria. He smiles. Simple. I like it. My phone buzzes on the table. It's my mother. I inhale slowly before answering. Hi, Mom. Beyond the walls of the apartment, I hear something. I can't be sure, but it sounds like a tiny giggle from far away. I smile and start to tell my mom all about it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lift. Today's episode featured a story by Gwendolyn Keist, Girl Alone at Play. If you'd like more information on Gwendolyn and her work, please visit GwendolynKeist.com and follow her on Twitter at Gwendolyn Keist. Please help others find our little lost place. Share the show and help us grow. The best support you can give us is to retweet, repost, and share the link to VictoriousLift.com. Follow us on Twitter at Victoria's Lift and find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. Don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to the show in Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and coming soon to iTunes and Google Play. This show's feed is feeds.feedburner.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. All work read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Cynthia Lohman. Find her at CynthiaLohman.com or on Twitter at Cynthia Lohman. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth-Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. Find her on Twitter at Blimberino. This episode was scored by Nico Vitaze of We Talk of Dreams. 
wetalkofdreams.com. The Lift opening theme music was composed and recorded by Kimberly Henninger and Sean Park of Cathedral Sounds, cathedralsounds.org. The Lift closing theme music was composed and recorded by the aforementioned Nico Vitaze of We Talk of Dreams. Incidental music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Lift is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Creator and producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and co-creator, Cynthia Lohman. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at victoriaslift.com forward slash S1E6. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen, the M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.